Hi there, church family. It's good to be with you today through this podcast as we're getting ready to do a sermon recap, um, looking at what we went through this past Sunday for our message and the preaching time of our of our worship service together. We've been in the book of First Timothy for a few weeks now. We are in First Timothy chapter 3, the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 16 here. And it's helpful to remember uh, what we saw in chapter 3 so far. Uh, Paul's focus in chapter 3 has been on qualifications for leadership and also establishing the two offices that are to be within the church, the pastor-elder role and the deacon. And then after he talks about this is where where we will be, and his focus is looking at the church and kind of answering the question, what is what is the church? And almost kind of also, what does the church do in a in a way? Uh, and so, let me read that for you, if I can see it this morning. It says, "I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of true of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so Paul is talking to, remember he's writing to Timothy, but also he knows that this letter will be read in the church as a whole. And he lets them know a couple times that he has a desire to go and see them, but he also knows that he might be delayed for whatever reason, whatever it might be. And there are some words that he needs to share with the church uh, <clears throat> if he is going to be delayed, something that is very important. And it's kind of if if I can't be there in person, this is the next best, best thing. Let me send this letter to you so that I can give you some instruction here, which he's really been doing all summer. Remember, he's telling Timothy to deal with the false prophets in the church who are false teaching, um, and leading people astray. He's talked about the public worship service and what that should look like and some order within the public worship service, talking about the leaders within within the church. And so he's, he's told them a lot of, of different stuff. But here he's saying, I, I do want to come to you, but I'm writing to you this so that if you delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He found this to be very important. Um, and it is kind of interesting because it does it does show us something that I didn't mention, I guess, at all in the sermon, and you guys could talk about this too, is we believe one is saved by, by grace. This is a work of God. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation at all. But Paul does show here that for those who have been saved, they're part of the church family, and there is a way to behave, right? So they're there is a change in some character. There is a, a change in behavior that should happen and should be an outflowing of what God has done. And that's something that Paul is is discussing here. One cannot say that, <clears throat> oh yeah, God saved me, but nothing in my life is going to change. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always been doing. No big deal. No, there there are some, some changes that are going to take place and that need to take place. And, uh, some of that is within how the church functions and um, how it is how it is structured. Uh, it's also interesting to me as one who I'm not the biggest fan of uh, organizational structures and uh, all that kind of stuff. But this is what Paul's wanting them to know. He's like, listen, this is how it sh- your church should be led. This is how it should be conducted. This is how stuff should be should be done. And it's very important. And so even though I might be one who's like, I'm not too into this stuff, I can't just you can't just push it aside because the Bible speaks of it as being an important thing of how a church functions and is and is run and how it and how it works. Um, and we get that here from Paul uh, for sure. Um, so let's see. Let's uh, we won't spend much time in verse 14. I talked a little bit about Paul's work planning churches and continuing to minister to those churches and care care for those churches the best that he could. Um, but in verse 15, when he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he goes on to, to talk about the household of God. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
And so answering that question, kind of what is the church? Paul says a definition for the church in verse 15, which, which the Bible gives us a lot of definitions for the church, right? The body of Christ, mm-hmm. family of God, all these different things. Well, here's, a, here's another one that we can put, put in there. And he says, first of all, it is of the living God. Now, why is this an important statement for us as a church to hold on to, to know, to grasp, to understand church of the living God? Why would, why would Paul, why would Paul bring that, bring that out? Anybody? I think, I mean, what you brought out in your sermon, it was a, it's kind of a direct contradiction of what was taught in Ephesus among the majority culture there of kind of calling out their, their pagan gods that, uh, that were not alive, that were dead, Hmm. um, uh, in comparison to Christ who is alive. You know, we have a a savior who is living. He's no longer dead in the tomb. He's alive. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that Christianity is the only, is the only religion, right? If you want to think of that perspective in the world, as the world looks at it, where our God is, is alive. He's not dead, right? He's living, right? He came to us in flesh. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's just, that's a huge difference that we can point out yeah. it's pointing out the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like Peter says that we have a living hope, you know, and the idea that this, the gospel uh, is living, it's active. It's the, you know, Hebrews, a double-edged sword living and active. And I think the emphasis on living is, especially like you said, the context, you know, and you mentioned your sermon, um, but also like, it's still, it, there's still, it's pulsating, you know, it's moving forward. The kingdom of God is advancing as Jesus said. And so I think that emphasis of living, I think is very significant because it's not something that's just like, Oh, we look back to the past to see, you know, what Jesus has done, but it's still moving forward. It's still ongoing, still living and active. So, yeah. I forgot what the Psalm is that uh, talks about the gods of the world that have eyes that cannot see mouths Mm -hmm. that cannot speak. Yeah. Right, and so you have these idols with all of these body parts mm-hmm. on them that aren't useful because yeah. they're just statues. Yeah. And they're not alive, mm-hmm. whereas God is real. Right, there's that comparison there. That language is used often in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your mind could go to Elijah with the prophets of Baal, mm-hmm. you know, and he's like, "Well, maybe." Remember when he? They're calling out. They're like, "Maybe, maybe it's a, maybe he's asleep. Yeah, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Right? Maybe he just can't." hear you and what yeah. is Elijah pointing out there mm-hmm. right he's pointing out the fact that there, there's no God here mm-hmm. Baal's not a living God and even then in the Old Testament they would have said I know that we we're focusing on Christ and his resurrection um, but they would have said Israel says we serve the living God mm-hmm. the one true living God mm-hmm. uh, and how do we know he's living well look Elijah would say watch watch I'll show you how he's living he's about to consume this as we call as I call on him here mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, that that uh, passage comes to comes to my mind as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says here, right? You are the church of the living God. Again, this is a direct push against the gods of Ephesus, uh, the the temple of Diana, Diana, mm-hmm. Diana, 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 slash Artemis, Artemis, yeah. And so, a direct push against that. Uh, remember, Paul right getting almost thrown out and they're wanting to kill him because he's actually causing a problem with the idol making industry uh that's happening and taking mm-hmm. place uh, there and so idols are very prevalent and there is a definite push here against the culture of saying remember you serve the true living god not these false gods not these gods that don't do anything for you you serve you serve the real god and when you start thinking about that culture in light of our culture today you see how it's still very relevant to us as as the church, right? Uh, it's so easy for us to get um, distracted by the other gods that are in this world that many of our neighbors, friends, and even family serve. And it becomes enticing to serve those because they seem to be tangible things that we can touch, that we can feel, um, and might even bring instant pleasure at times or or it appears to give us some sort of security in the future even and so we can tend to start chasing after these gods and it's a it's a good reminder for us as a church to be reminded those are not real those are not living those are not things that can actually do anything for you we're not saying they're completely bad things now serving false gods is bad but what i'm talking about of like 
I don't know, trying to advance in your career could become a God for somebody. Trying to advance your career is not a bad thing. Nothing wrong with that. But it can become bad. It can become, it can become wrong. Uh, we need to be reminded of what we are as the church. We, we serve the, the living God, the, the true God. And that's what, that's what Paul goes on to say after he says the living God. He says, a pillar and buttress of, of the truth. And this is something I, I'm not sure we always wrap our heads around fully. What, what do you guys think about when you read that little section there? The church is the pillar and buttress of, of the truth. Well, I, going back a little bit before we talk, I do think it's important that Paul calls the, he says, the household of God, which is the church. Mm-hmm. And so what he's... That's where the question comes in that I brought up in the message. Is Paul talking about the actual location that the church is in, or, or, or more specifically, when the church is gathered, mm-hmm. or is it talking a little bit more general of the church life, not just the gathering? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a question there because of, of what you said. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being a household um, would have been very um, common to, to people in the ancient world. The household was considered the most basic unit of society and it consisted of a father a mother it could consist of children it could even consist of slaves Um, you were all part of this basic household unit underneath the the fatherly care who was the leader um, in a sense really the ruler of the family and that was the most basic unit of society Um, and so but so what Paul is saying right away, I think, is very interesting because Paul applies that to Timothy later on because th- the first thing that he says, this is the household of God. This is God's family. And so the way that God is our father, Jesus Christ is the eldest brother, and the way we treat each other is as family. Um, and so Paul will tell Timothy, you need to treat older women like your mother. You need to treat younger women like your sister. You need to treat older men like your fathers. And so he he uses the family relationship that we see outside of the church and says that is to be an instruction and a similarity to the way you treat your church members and the way you view each other. You are family. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, um, in his book on the church, where he talks about metaphors for the church, he gives some metaphors like the church is like a, it's like a city. Um, but he points out the church is, whenever we say the church is family, it's not like a family. The church is family. Mm-hmm. Family is not a metaphor. Family is reality. Mm-hmm. And so the church is the household of God. It's not like the household of God. It is the family of God. And so the way that we treat each other in this is that, and this is really foundational too, right? God in Jesus is creating a new human family. He is restoring what was lost in Adam. He is bringing it back and renewing it in an even better way in Jesus Christ. So the way that we treat each other as a local church, the way we view each other, the way, so, so it it should be based upon this thing that we are now, because we are united in Jesus, we are now a family. And so because we're family, we should treat each other that way. And that's kind of where what you were talking about, Tim, is it should change the way we live, but it's always rooted in the, in the, the reality, the, the indicative accomplished reality is it's, it's not treat each other this way so that you guys will become a family. It's because you're a family, you need to treat each other this way. Mm-hmm. And that's so important for our people in our churches to hear. It's not like we're trying to artificially create a family here at the church. No, we already are. Mm-hmm. You can't help it. You are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have elder fathers in the Lord, so to speak, elder mothers, and so on. So we need to start looking at each other as for who we are in Jesus. And then whenever you think about those family relationships and dynamics that that God is recreating in the church, it, we're the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Um, I think it's interesting. How often would we think of the church that way and think of mm-hmm. the church is the place. And so, and, and there's a sense in which the church is, is both a people and a place. Uh, Michael Horton has a book 
mm-hmm. called that, the a people in place. Mm-hmm. Um, the church is the place that upholds the truth, that supports the truth, and is the buttress to defend against false teaching. And this, uh, it kind of makes me think as well how um, there's that, that ancient phrase, which is, you cannot have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. And the idea is, is you need the church to feed you, to care for you, the whole church, to grow you up in the Christian faith. And that's how God, your father, trains you is through the church. And sometimes, I shouldn't say sometimes, it's very prevalent in our current cultural situation to think of church as the optional add-on, when actually, according to Paul, it's yeah. he he would say there's 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 no comprehension for him to think of a churchless Christian. You you have to, it's kind of like thinking of a child who was born without a mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's impossible. You have to have the church to be an integral part of your defending of the truth, and you can't defend the truth on your own. You can't defend the truth in your own even in your own family. You need the church mm-hmm. to defend the truth. That's who God has committed it to. The whole congregation, the whole family of God is the place where the gospel truth is upheld, supported, and defended, I guess. That's kind of what comes to my mind initially. And just to add on that real quick, the word buttress, um, actually, it's only used once here in the New Testament, and it means to support. Mm. It has the idea of like a supporting beam. And I've never, you know, seen the ruin. I've seen pictures of the ruins in Ephesus, but we did go to... uh, to uh, Greece, to Corinth, when I was in seminary, and you see all these Corinthian pillars, and they were these huge marble support pillars that would right. hold up these temples, and their, And I know Ephesus was famous for their library and had these beautiful columns, but I think that's probably the picture that, that Paul had in mind and that his audience would have clearly understood. You have this idea that the church is a pillar and a support a buttress of truth. And it literally, just like it holds up the temples, these pillars, mm-hmm. these massive marble pillars. So the truth of God's word and what he's given to us as a church is held up. He holds it up. And we are therefore to hold it up, if you will, before the mm-hmm. world. So it's interesting he uses those word pictures yeah. to kind of... Yeah. And a buttress is kind of like the, the, if you think of what an old medieval cathedral looks mm-hmm. like, it's got these really big walls, but they became thinner and thinner. So there's this wing that comes off that of the building that just holds it up in mm-hmm. place. Yeah. But the passage that came to my mind, and, and uh, you alluded to this, Spencer, about defending the truth, is in the book of Jude. In, <clears throat> in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints Mm -hmm. or the church Mm -hmm. and so the church holding up the truth the church is not the truth but it's been the truth has been delivered to the church it's been given to the church and the church has to contend for it to hold it up uh to hold it in high honor and what you said later in your sermon tim to proclaim that as well Mm -hmm. and so it's uh it's it's a grand privilege Mm -hmm. that we've been given something so precious yeah, sadly, I think the church has been so watered down. Uh, Spencer was saying it a little bit, I think, about uh, a lot of people feel they don't need the church, um, that what the church is is you're a Christian, and so now you're a part of the church. But that's not separated from the other people who are a part of the church. And the way that we see that come about is through the local church. Um, we see that very early on, even with Paul's ministry here, of creating these local churches that he tells them to serve together, to love each other, to care for each other, to come under the preaching of the Word of God together. But today, that to me has been took away to the point to where we've we've began to believe, I think, what the pushback was against the church for a long time is that the church is more so for weak people or even ignorant people, people who still believe in these false myths, these old things that couldn't be true. And those are the people who need the church. Uh, If you really want the truth, you should go to school and you should go get education you should learn about science and math and these things that we can actually know that can be proven scientifically, uh, not the church. And even when I say that, I know that there'd be people who'd be like, no, I don't think that. But they still don't want to come and be a part of the church. They don't want to come and sit under the teaching. They don't want to come and be involved. They don't want to care for uh, a local body. And their reasoning still, I think, is because they have such a minimized view of what the church is and the role of the church. 
God did not give an individual Christian the keys to the kingdom. He did not give that to an individual Christian to go do. He gave it to a family, his family, which is the church, to do. And we must be faithful to be a part of that family and to do that and to not minimize the tasks that we have. I don't remember the example I gave uh, yesterday in the sermon. <clears throat> oh, I think it was about it was about work and like having a big thing to teach at work or something like that. But if if you've been given this this task that is just this huge important task that is really going to help mankind, like it really is a big task. And uh, I want to go out there and I want to do this right. I want to do this well, and I want to put my effort into it. And I would see it as serious. And the fact that I'm the one who gets to do it would bring some dread, I'm sure, to my heart, but also some like, well, I must be kind of important. You know, it must be kind of a big deal. Uh, people trust me with this, and so I'm. That's what it says on your on your desk. You have yeah, a sign that yeah. says that. Yeah, I had that given to me. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that gift. Uh, but I just don't think, as a church, we see the fact that we are the ones who've been given the task of sharing the gospel as really that important. I don't think we view it that way. I think we view things in our job as more important. I think there's Christians, and this might sound bad, there's Christians who view them raising their kids as more important than the fact that they've been given the gospel to share it. That That's more important of a task. Or in their marriage, their marriage is more important of a task than the task the church has been given. Now, again, those aren't bad things. Those are even things that Paul would instruct us what to do uh, within those relationships. But the biggest, the biggest thing that the church has been given is, is the gospel. And we've been given the job of proclaiming the gospel. And God then even set it up for us saying, you know what? I'm going to work within the week one time for you to always proclaim the gospel. And that's when you gather together to worship me. But there's so many people who are like, yeah, I'm not going to go. I mean, the truth is, this past Sunday, it snowed like an inch, and our numbers were way down because when it snowed, and I get it, there are some people who can't come, and they shouldn't come because of safety things, but there are plenty of people who should have come. I have no doubt. I they... did. I saw, I have one couple in my mind right now who you would have thought they could have stayed home because of the weather. Oh, they wish were... they would have. <laughs> and they were here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I think, I guess yeah, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not trying to lay on guilt or anything. I'm just saying. If, if the task is that important. Yeah, it's a like, value. Like I know for me, if I paid 200 bucks for some tickets to some show for me and my wife or my family, you better bet that snow would not have deterred me for a mm -hmm. second to go to that because I put a lot of money into that. Mm -hmm. But it's just so easy to be like, you know, there'll be another church service Sunday. But it's like, yeah, but this is what God has called us to, to proclaim the gospel to the world to let them know who we are, what God has done for us. And that's our gathering here together. Um, and that's what I mean by I think we just, we've allowed the culture to water down the truth that we have. Right. Mm -hmm. And we seem to forget that it is the church and the church alone who has the truth for the world. It's not Harvard. It's not academia in any way. It's not any government. It's not the celebrities. It's not you know, the Oscars were last night. It's not media. It's not any of that stuff. Those They do not have the truth. Mm -hmm. The church has been given the truth. And I think we need to take that very seriously. Um we go ahead. Yeah, no, I think I think a couple of things play into that too. Um, first of all, real quickly, some people, I think, um, because of the place that the time and place that we live in, there are a number of like uh, other organizations, Christian organizations, that will. Um, with, yeah. We think right. well, it's not the church's job; it's our job to give money to those church to those organizations to do the Great Commission work right. for us. Right. So that is some place that 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 then makes people think, well, this is just my local church. We that's, talk, we that's, talked about that a little bit. Am I gonna die? <coughs> nope, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like it for a second. I hope not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're on air. <laughs> Was it? La it was recently. I don't remember if it was a podcast or what. But we talked about seminaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and our we don't need those. Right. That's not a biblical thing. Right. Right. And where sadly churches are like handing over men to mm -hmm. seminaries and saying, mm -hmm. "Do the job of the church," mm -hmm. which again, sure. I'm not saying that's all ba a bad sure. thing. But I think that goes along with what you're saying. Yeah. Right. It's like mm -hmm. 
We'll just support uh, Samaritans Aviation, and that'll be our evangelism. Right. It would be so. Here you go. Right. That would be like, um, or we'll support the IMB, the International Mission Board, as Good Southern Baptists, but that's they do that. They do the missions work. Yeah. Second of all, I do think again there is a misunderstanding of church life, and part of that problem is is not their fault. It's what churches have done. Is going back to this ho- this household idea. Whenever I I think many people, when they think about whenever we say the phrase, you need to get plugged into a local church, they think we're saying you need to that not only do you need to join that church, but then you need to get involved in the organizations within the church. I think people are thinking you're thinking programmatically right. and they're thinking you need to get plugged in. Therefore you need to get involved in this program and that program, this program, and that program. I don't know about you guys. My family's only got five people in it. I have zero programs in my house. I don't have like, all right, uh, Wednesday night children. We're going to have the, this program going on mm-hmm. in our household. I'm the dad. My wife's the mother. We've got three kids. We don't, we don't, <laughs> Now we have, we have events, we survive, (laughs) you know, but I'm just saying like, we have our roles, but we don't like our family life. We have things we go to, but like, I don't programize my family Mm -hmm. inside my home. We have plans. We do stuff together, but because we're a family, we don't, because we don't view each other as family in our local church, we then programize everything. And so people don't think of church whenever they think of that, they're not thinking, I'm joining a spiritual family. They think you're asking them to join programs in the local church to work at. Mm. And that is, uh, I think that is not all their fault because that is what many churches do mean when they say get involved in a church. They mean we're going to put you to work. And that's not what Paul is saying here. I think too, like the issue, I think we would all say the issue is not necessarily like a specific program or whatever, because we have those. Sure. We use those as tools of discipleship. The issue comes when when what you mean by getting plugged in is we've got to get this person connected to their affinity group, people who are just like them, and just keep them there, make sure they feel connected. But the problem with that is if your connection to your church is based on something other than what makes you part of that church, mm-hmm. which is the gospel sure. and believing in that, then that's not how a family works, yeah. like what you're saying, right? Right. And so like if your connection to your church is only these people over here who are interested in this program or only this certain age demographic of people over here that are at a similar stage of life as you, well, that's not how a family works. The mothers interact with the children. The fathers interact with the cousins. Mm-hmm. All these, right. you know, there's there's the family dynamic of just being all intertwined with one another. Right. And when the basis of your fellowship becomes something other than your unity of faith in the gospel, that's when the family idea starts to break down. Right. And it starts to become more of an organization. Right. Right. Well, and I think, too, uh, playing the same idea, right, where using the example of seminaries. Seminaries are nice to have, but they're not necessary for the life of the church. When we think they're necessary, then we have a problem. Similarly, programs by themselves are not bad, but if you think you can't have a church without programs, then we have an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're on the same playing field, right? Programs can serve the church as a family and help us be organized, but if you think that we can't survive without this program or that program, then, then we've uh, then we've misunderstood the basic idea of what the church is all yeah, about. Yeah, I think I think COVID really showed a lot of churches that mm-hmm. you know, as and a lot of church members that it's like, are are we still a church because we can't do all the programs? Yeah, you know, and it's like, yeah, oh yeah, we're we're still a church. Like, there was a lot of people who were like, I don't I don't think so, and they felt disconnected, mm-hmm. right? And then a lot of those aren't around anymore. I think we need to clarify what mean what we mean by program. Because our church historically has had what we call programs, which are plays. Oh, is that yeah. all? Is that all oh. we're talking about here? Oh, I'm no, not talking about no. that. At You're all. talking about a broader category. Yeah. I'm talking about a broader category, classes like like yeah, events. like classes and events. events. So like we run up, we run programs around here, right? We have, we try to do a, a youth event every month. We try to do a kids event, you know, uh, quarterly. We try to. We have Sunday school. We have our Wednesday night stuff where you have a youth Bible study and you have prayer meeting we have choir we have a praise team we have 
conferences uh, or youth camps. Yeah, conferences or youth school. camps or mission trips or mm-hmm. uh, our cis group. You know, the widows get together, uh, the craft ladies on Tuesday. Right, we have all these things that we would call different programs within the church that you can get quote unquote plugged into. You can do, and all of them are fine. Mm-hmm. But if you got rid of all of those, we're still a church. Mm-hmm. If we gather together on Sunday to worship, then we're we are a church. Even Sunday school. As much as I would say people should be in Sunday school, you can get rid of that and still be still be a church. That's a program that a church uses. But Sunday morning worship is not a program. Mm-hmm. It's it's what we do. It's us mm-hmm. coming and being the pillar of truth as we proclaim the gospel through the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, and the singing of the word. We're proclaiming it to each other. But at the same time, we're proclaiming it to our community because we've gathered together to do this. We're saying we are a people set apart by God to come and to worship him. Um, and now, yes, of course, we hope that that would overflow, that communicating the gospel would overflow, not just on Sunday morning here, but in your guys' homes, right, in the community, all these different places. But that's what that's what we're talking about, programs, right? Anything beyond that. And, yeah, churches can get... I mean, church staffs, church pastors, most of them, when you talk to them, it's like, why are you so burnt out? It's never, I'm burnt out preaching. I'm burnt out proclaiming the gospel and the truth to my people every week. It's it's not that. It's always programs. Or if you talk to church members a lot of times who seem to be getting burnt out, and it's, I've just been a part of these programs for years. I'm just tired. And it's that's what it is. you know. And again, I'm not saying programs are bad, inherently bad. It's just... When we start to base everything off of those, like you were right. saying, Spencer, and and COVID <laughs> revealed that, did it not? I mean, yeah. it was like, well, well, what are we if we can't do this? Right, right. Uh, we're the Church of the Living God, the pillar and buttress well, of truth. And then, and then I'll I'll tie this in <laughs> one more time, but uh, the household idea. But you notice the qualifications for elders and deacons really emphasize your management of your own household. Mm-hmm. So you are to have characteristics that are family characteristics as in your relationships with as a father, with your wife or your children, same pastors and deacons. So that highlights when Paul thinks of what a pastor and a deacon is, he's thinking of somebody who serves the family of God in a familial way, who's going to be act in a a befitting way um, towards other people in this family way. And I think that that is important because whenever we lose sight of the family aspect of the church as the household of God, then we ask pastors to do different jobs besides those things that Paul talks about, because then they are simply, I mean, many churches operate as if there's a pastor as a CEO or he runs an organization when actually the the terms that Paul uses are actually um, very familial faithfulness in your family um, generally speaking, Paul sees is going to generally translate to faithfulness towards the church family mm-hmm. because yeah. we're a family. Yeah. I think, I think you have this book, Scott, it's the book, it's really interesting. It's called when the church was a household, when the church was a family or a family. Yes. Yeah. It was a family. And he really emphasizes that, you know, looking culturally, how, how far we are in Western culture from the culture of Paul's day. In fact, that we don't think collectively, we don't yeah. think in the sense of we belong to one another. We think very individualistically. We think about how, Oh, I'm going to go here, move here because of this opportunity. And that was unheard of. And, very much not at all prevalent in that culture, and yet it's very difficult for us to think collectively, and yet being part of a church is that. It's a household. It's a collectiveness. It's a sense of belonging. It's not about, hmm, what can I get out of this? How can I consume this? And yet that's what we're, that's the mm-hmm. water we drink in our culture. So it's a good book. It was very helpful reading that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So <clears throat> as the culture around us crumbles morally, uh, maybe pushing more against uh, the things that we believe in uh, of God and who he is, Christ, and what he has done. It becomes important. It's always important, but I think it becomes a little more realized maybe the importance of us to, as the church, to hold the truth up within the body of Christ for sure. Don't let the culture come in here, right? We stay true to what God has called us us to. And uh, there's times that means you're going to have to stand up for the truth as a church family in the community where it's going to make your church look bad. 
Uh, it means that <clears throat> there's times you might lose people over it. You know, uh, I'm not. I don't think we should be cultural warriors. I, I don't think that's our our purpose. Uh, but <clears throat> the culture does push against it, and that's why when we look in the history of the church, what do we find? We find people dying for their faith, oftentimes, and they weren't being problems in society. They were just standing against some things that society uh, stood up for. And God used those people, right? Uh, we saw it with the deacons when we did that. And we just see throughout history as Christians, as they are the church, God sustains them. God uses their faithfulness. Now they might suffer, they might die, but the church doesn't end and the church doesn't stop. And it's these ordinary means that God continues to use of the church gathering, the people singing, there's preaching, there's Lord's Supper, there's baptism. And while these other programs and other things can be fine, that's not what God has established. And uh, we have to be we have to be careful um, about that. Well, I see we're at 36 minutes. Let's get to 16 real quick, okay? Um, we kind of have here uh, the... I don't know if I want to say the first confession, but we have a very early confession of the church, it seems, of what Paul writes here. Some call this a, a hymn, maybe, um, but it, it tends to work as a confession where he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, which we could take time to talk about the mystery of godliness if we want, but it says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Now, Real quick, this is like study nerd, nerdy stuff, I guess. But the he is very hard to figure out, I found. <laughs> I went to Scott the one day and asked him a little bit. Um, I think, Dave, you might have been gone because I would have asked you. So the King James Version uses says God there. Hmm. And when you go to Strong's Concordance and you link that word God to what the what word it's interpreting, it clearly is God. And it says in the it says in this manuscript that they used, that is the word. Mm-hmm. I see that. But then when you go to the ESV and you do that, it's not God anymore. It's just He. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know enough, I guess, about the the early manuscripts where maybe you would or, mm-hmm. or Spencer you two or whatever to know what's happening there. I mean, is it is it that we've learned more since the KJV was written that now the general consensus is this is the most accurate one that it's just he or or what or I, I don't I don't know what's happened I don't think it changes necessarily what's being said because the he definitely is referencing God mm-hmm. um, but I don't know when the KJV says when the KJV says God was manifested in the flesh it just seems to hit harder than just saying he was manifested mm-hmm. in the flesh. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like the the Greek text, theos is used, which is the word for God. Um, I, and I don't know enough about the ESV um, as far as how they went about their manuscripts. But I mean, typically, they they would look at you know the the old manuscripts that they found, like the Coptic and all these different you know types, uh, basically kind of labeled from where they found them, perhaps, or the area that they studied this, and they kind of compare it, and so. There probably were manuscripts, I don't know, maybe you know too, Spencer, that had the pronoun for he um, used and also the, uh, theos. I, I actually like the fact that God is used there because I think it does yeah. bring it out, and I'm not sure why ESV I mean, this was result. an argument, it seemed, even during the Reformation time. Yeah. Because when you read uh, some of them, they even bring up the debate mm-hmm. of it being there. Mm-hmm. And so there was textual criticism yeah. happening yeah. even then. Right. Um so I just, I, I think when you read the ESV, it gives a footnote, does it not? Yeah. Don't you have one yeah. there that says? Uh, it says it's literally who. Yeah. It's who. So it's it's a, uh, I mean, and this is this is interesting stuff, but because uh, like I know, um, yeah, and and like obviously to be a, an expert on Greek manuscripts, 
is yeah. is a very there's very few of those people in the world so like you know yeah, like so that's true that's just really honest but like i know there's like the uh the textual tradition you'll get like the majority text or the like i don't know that it's synonymous with the byzantine text like those terms but yeah. mm-hmm. um oftentimes that would be more of what the king james translation was 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 used from then there's like some people will call them like the alexandrian text they were and earlier like, texts. yeah that are yeah. earlier the byzantines were may have uh they would have you know so like the king james may have they may have used a certain text mm-hmm. and you could see for instance um potentially why somebody who's a scribe is, right. is writing here and thinking well obviously this is jesus so i'm just gonna throw the god. word god in here mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't change the meaning of the text right. at all. Now, the question I would have is, and I you studied this, Tim, and this I don't know if this is an option, but when he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, if it is the Greek pronoun who, the mystery of godliness is Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. That is the name for Jesus. The mystery of godliness, who was manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the mystery, and, and, and mystery right in um, Greek has the idea of, something that um, was hidden before, hidden, now but revealed. now has been yeah. revealed. Mysterium. So here is, here is the revelation of God likeness. Yeah. He was, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. So all of these are modifying and further describing who this mystery of godliness. So in a sense, it's a capital M yeah. mystery of godliness. If you take it that way, did any commentators do yeah, that? I mean, there was, while I say there was like debate, it wasn't like a debate that yeah. this changes things. It was just more of like, what is the word that's supposed to be here? Because if you right. do look like in the ESV there, it says Greek, who, some manuscripts, God, others, which. Right. Mm-hmm. All of all of those, if you put them in their same same yeah. meaning, yeah. right? Nothing, nothing really. No doctrine changes. No doctrine no. changes. Yeah. There's no truth changes. That would be the subject, it. whether you use yeah. he, God, or who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's referencing back to. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. Like what all we're talking about, there's like the theological implications, but also in terms of conversations that people might have with like their coworkers or like fellow students about if they get into a debate about the Bible specifically Mm -hmm. and its truthfulness. And people will often point out like the thousands of errors that exist in the Bible or thousands of differences that exist between manuscripts that have been found. And most of those differences are just like this one right yes, here. Right. Exactly. They're they're differences of pronouns or of some other small word mm-hmm. that no matter how you change it to fit like one ever one of three or four variants, it still means the same thing. Yeah, it's something like if I remember right, like ninety eight or ninety nine percent accurate throughout yeah. everything. And then of that little percentage is exactly what you said. Yes. It's it's something like it doesn't make any difference anyways yeah. in the in the So text. people feel really smart right. when they're right. able to say, well, I've studied this and I found out that there's actually thousands of manuscripts that disagree with each other about what the Bible actually says. Yeah. Well, they're not as smart as what they think they no, are. You read that in a, on a website somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think what you, uh, an important point is, is because you're right, some people will say there are errors. Yeah. And actually, the correct term would be there are variants, variants, variants yeah. because <laughs> because because it doesn't mean. I mean, obviously, one of them is is uh, m- more likely to be the original manuscript, the autograph that was literally written by Paul. Closer to that, but um, but to call them va- they're variants, they're not errors, mm-hmm. and it's very important because even the language is important. How you talk about this stuff. And then, yeah, it would be great for them to go and then look at the actual textual history compared to other religious traditions or ancient world manuscripts. Because the one thing about Christianity that we do is we actually put footnotes here to say there are variants Mm -hmm. here. We're honest. We're honest. Yeah. Because there's other religions that might not be so honest Mm -hmm. about that. We are not afraid. Our our manuscript history is is available for everyone to look at. And we don't hide that. We're so honest. There's even some passages that the footnote says... This might not have been in the original yeah, sure. entire sections. Right. And, and right. we just want to present right. that honestly to people. Yes. We're not trying to deceive anyone. Yeah. Right. We and actually want to have the most accurate Bible that we can have. Exactly. And if that means that, well, you know, 400 years later, we found other manuscripts and this translation needs to be updated sure. to reflect what is probably the most accurate. Yeah. We can be honest about that. Yeah. And further, just like you said, Spencer, I mean, there's not a lot of people that are experts in this field because the old manuscripts had no punctuation. (laughs) 
they had no no breaking, no spacing. So it was just reading the Greek straight through as like a one long run in sentence, mm-hmm. run on sentence. And even like University of Michigan has a PhD program for that very purpose for students to come and actually dissect old manuscripts. I don't yeah. think you're getting people knocking at the door for that program, per <laughs> <Yeah>. se. <laughs> but yeah. it is a difficult task. And so to your point, I mean, it's variance. It's not errors. It's just you know, just, I mean, sometimes you can't even read the smudge that's there. It's right. like, is that a letter? What is that? Is that a, you know. So anyway. Right, exactly. Do you know, they, Michigan used to have some of the early manuscripts. Mm-hmm. They still do. And you can go, you could go see them. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I did talk to somebody about that program. It's been a while now. Um, I don't know if it's open to the public or if they have special times uh, you can do that, but they do have a very unique uh, PhD program to go and and pursue that. Um, so they might, yeah. Um, another place is the library in, in New York City, the big library there. They have on the top floor, they have old manuscripts that you can actually, it's open to the public and you can go and look. Um, I've not been there. That's cool. Heard, yeah, that's cool. Anyway, did you go to that Museum of the Bible place in D.C. when you were there? No, it was like 30 bucks. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Checked> out. <laughs> you're going to go to that? Yeah, I've heard it's no, really good. No, oh. I, don't, I mean, I don't plan on going to D.C. In oh, you're going to D.C., that's right. Yeah, yeah you I'm going check to D.C. That out. Yeah, Jordan Peterson was associated with that, wasn't he? Yeah, that was that was uh, coming. Uh, that wasn't there when I was there. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, they have like four floors at this Bible thing, and yeah. two of them are always the same, but the other two changed out. Oh, okay. Oh. That was one of them. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Variants. Yeah. <laughs> Variants. Yeah, they vary. Yeah. No, I didn't go. Anyways, this is going too long. So yeah, God I'm was, sure that's exactly how you wanted that conversation to go. <laughs> that's, that's, good. that's why people tune in, Scott. Yeah. They want the deep dive wow. of the word. They key. don't get this anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so God manifested in the flesh. Obviously, this is important for us. Fully God, fully man. Vindicated by the Spirit, we see this with Christ, uh, the power of the Spirit evident on him, especially we see this with his resurrection. Um, seen by angels, again, this can be talked about, I think, in some different ways of what does this exactly mean fully. I tend to lean of what I said that uh, the angels got to witness redemption happen and take place, uh, and even the angels... He, I mean, we see this in like Hebrews, right? We see this in other places that he, mm-hmm. he was lower than angels, but now he's, he's placed above the angels. I think all that is kind of being played in here. Um, proclaimed among... So this is where uh, there is some debate um, happening here. Some would say seen by, seen by the angels means he ascended, and he's seen by the angels now. He's at the right hand of the Father. And then the rest is after the ascension, that now the gospel has gone out and been proclaimed among the nations that the world is now believing on him and he will be taken that that taken up in glory is uh end times focused mm. uh, again I, I don't think it's worth a, a strong debate because i i think all i think i think the taken up in glory could refer to his ascension but also i think it points us to the end as well of being glorified um there but this seems to be like a a statement of faith that Paul lays out for this church. Like, Hey, remember you're the pillar, the buttress of truth, uh, of the living God. And then, and then he like lays out almost the, here's the truth. Mm-hmm. This is what you share. Yep. This is what you do. I like the fact. Yeah. He says, we confess, this is a corporate creed, a, uh, which is simply a statement of what we have confidence in, what we're resting in. Additionally, it's interesting that, um, the verbs are in the passive, I think. At least that's the way it looks. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was manifested, mm-hmm. vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed, taken up. And I'd have to go back and look at my my little uh, thing. But oftentimes, whenever the the Greek term Greek word uses a passive verb, it's oftentimes giving prominence to the subject. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so it's oftentimes so these passive verbs are further giving prominence to the person it's being done to. Mm-hmm. So the central confession, the central confidence and the central the rock of our whole church is rooted in Jesus Christ. Further, even the verbs are are like the fact that they're in the passive tense or the passive voice, they're they're further highlighting to us that it's all centered around him. And I think that's for that's very helpful for us because yeah. anytime that we get off message from Jesus mm-hmm. um, and we go off and do cultural engagement or whatever else it might be 
if we move off of him and the revelation that has been given in and through Jesus Christ, we move off of this basic confession, mm-hmm. uh, this basic acknowledgement. The Old Testament confession was the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Uh, Jesus asked Peter to confess who he is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And further again, we see the confession of the church is manifested, it's vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed, taken up. Mm. So it's further, it's Christ in, in all of the, all of, who he is. Yeah. Yeah. These are all like, and Paul does this a lot. These are all aorist passive uh, verbs. Like, so the aorist tense, it's difficult to understand the aorist tense because we don't really use that in English, but basically it's something that happened in the past, but has continual effects for the ongoing present. So it's interesting that in, in the passive, like you said, Spencer has the idea of, of something happening to you, the subject doing something and we're the, we're, we're the benefit, you know, beneficiaries mm-hmm. of that. So that confession really makes sense. I've heard this, and I don't know if you saw this in your studies, Tim. I've heard this was both a confession and a hymn. It was probably, it could have been used by the church to sing. And it could it, have been, yeah. Yeah, and if you're really interested in, if this is kind of nerdy, but you can go on YouTube and you can find there's a hymn in Greek that somebody mm. did of this verse, and you can listen to it. It's kind of cool. It's pretty, mm-hmm. it has like kind of ambient type music, almost mm-hmm. like, a, or like, a, like a soundtrack. Or, but, okay. um, but yeah, it's, it's in Greek. It's pretty neat. So. Mm. Tim would like it in rap, probably, if they would rap it. We could work on that. Prefer that. Yeah, I would prefer that. What if we find out that the early church music was like rap? I mean, chanting. We know it <laughs> was not. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, yeah, the monks, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's it's true. It's, yeah. St. <laughs> Augustine's like, I don't want all this music. I just want rap. I just want to rap it. <laughs> <laughs> rap this verse in the beginning. <laughs> uh, I never thought about like Eminem being a monk and chanting, <laughs> <laughs> getting up front in the church. And, could happen. Like with the candles and everything. Yeah, yeah. it could. Yeah, maybe. But, well, something to think about. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's Greek rappers out there. <laughs> Hebrew yeah, rappers. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure they're out sure there. There are, for sure, yeah. All right, well. Well, speaking of uh, cultural engagement, I think we can say with some pastoral authority that our church members should be taking Thursday and Friday off of work to watch March Madness. Yes, we will. Uh... That's scriptural somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it's somewhere. Yeah. Well, it is St. Patrick's Day weekend, too. Yeah, there's that, and too. It could so be a variant in scripture, but it's there. <laughs> so. You're, you're good to take Thursday and Friday off and watch as much basketball as possible those two days. Yeah. Um, I, will, I will lead by example. <laughs> I will lead by example. If you show up, Tim will get one of those, uh, like we got little basketball stickers that we can put on your forehead. Instead of Ash Wednesday, we do little basketball yeah. stickers on your forehead to walk around with. At our staff meeting this morning, I handed out brackets to everybody mm-hmm. that was sitting on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that Scott picked Indiana to go all the way to the final four. Do you have them in the final? No, you have them losing to no. Gonzaga. Yep. Spencer picked Indiana to lose their first game. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting yeah. little thing. You know, see what pays yeah. off. Yeah. See what pays off. We'll see. Now, Scott was asking us for odd and even numbers earlier, and that's how <laughs> yes. he was basing his decision. Now, Scott, oh, that's that's tell, us. The final. <laughs> tell us who your winner is of the whole tournament. I put Baylor. The Baptist because, Baylor. Because I was told to pick odd, and Baylor was the odd number. <laughs> they, and they are, they are a historically Baptist school. Yeah, the Baylor Baptist. There you yeah. go. That's, and they're, sure. they're yeah. ranked good. Yeah, they're, they're good. Yeah. yeah, they are good. My, my father would be disappointed because I have Kentucky losing their second game. Kentucky's horrible. They should, they'll should they lose their first game. I have game. Kentucky losing their first game. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> they're horrible this year. We'll see what happens. <laughs> They people be a yeah. succeed, I can tell you that. Well, you know what? People who tend to know a lot about these things don't do great on their brackets either. So <laughs> you're right. So it's kind of based on luck. What you said? They are based on luck. They are very much based on luck. No doubt. That is true. No doubt. All right. Funny. Well, anyways, uh, we'll be in chapter four this coming week. Hopefully, you can read that and and study that some on your own. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, But until then, we hope that you have a, a great week. God bless.